We're in week three of a series called The Good Fight. Everybody say The Good Fight. And our challenge as a church, as individuals, is that we would fight the good fight of the faith. Here's the theme verse for this series. It is 2 Timothy, actually 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says to a young pastor named Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We're talking in this series about the fact that in life, especially as a believer, we are called to fight. There is spiritual warfare involved in life that as we walk through our everyday lives, there is a spiritual realm and we are called to fight the good fight. It's a fight of faith. And so the weapons we fight with aren't weapons of this world. Our enemies aren't people necessarily of this world specifically. And so we've been talking through this series about what it looks like to fight the good fight. Let's review real quickly. Week number one, we talked about the fact that there is a reward that's worth fighting for in this life. Here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 7 to 8. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is at the end of his life. He's imprisoned in Rome, facing potentially uh, a death execution, and he knows that his time has come to an end, and he looks back on all of the struggle, missionary journeys, started churches, he was persecuted, he was punished, he was imprisoned multiple times, he looks back on all of that at the end of his life, and he says to a young pastor who's just getting started, it's worth it, it's worth it. If you fight the good fight of the faith, you'll not regret it. There won't come a day where you say, I wish I didn't endure that struggle and fight the good fight because it's worth it. And there's a reward waiting for all of us. And then in week two, we talked about the importance of knowing our spiritual enemy. The fact that we have a spiritual enemy, specifically Satan and his demons and the whole spiritual realm of things. Uh, but we really talked about the fact that our greatest enemy in this life isn't Satan, it's not the devil, but rather it's our flesh and it's sin. And so we have to fight every day against our flesh. And here was the verse that we looked at, Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death, if you fight against the deeds of the body, if you resist, if you stand firm against your flesh and don't allow it to lead you in life, but rather be led by the Spirit, then there will be a crown of righteousness for us, that there is a reward. And so we have to realize the proclivity we have towards sin and we have to identify the sins that we struggle with and we talked about six steps to fight against sin in our life and today I want to take it a step further but before I do I want to share a story with you uh, this series is called the good fight how many of you have experienced in life that there are also bad fights fights not worth fighting you've ever heard the phrase um, that some battles just aren't worth fighting uh, that you can win a battle but lose the war I experienced that several months ago let me share I had one of my, I'll say, less than all-star parenting moments when I took my youngest son, three-year-old Cohen, on a bike ride. 
when I say I took my three-year-old on a bike ride, he has what's called a balance bike. If you're familiar with a balance bike, it's essentially a bicycle without the pedals, and it sits low enough that your feet touch the ground, and you essentially sit on the bike, you learn to steer, but your feet walk, and then you learn to run, and then you get to going fast, you pick your feet up, and so you're actually learning to balance and drive a bike, but without pedals, so that when you step into a bike with pedals, you already know how to ride a bike, and it worked great for our six-year-old, and so we've got our three-year-old now riding this balance bike, and he says to me from time to time, let's go for a bike ride, and I'll take him for a bike ride, and Part of our subdivision is pretty flat, and so as we go for bike rides, he just walks along, and there's not really any danger. There's no brakes on a balance bike because your feet are always on the ground, in theory. So he says to me on this particular day, I'm going to go this way, Daddy, and I'm going to go up the hill. Now, I've actually taken him up the hill before, so I didn't really think twice about it, and we went up the hill. And we got to the top of the hill, and I reminded him like I had before, son, you don't have brakes on this bike. He had gotten a little more courageous. He was now picking his feet up and going down smaller hills without dragging his feet as brakes. And I said, if you go down this hill without putting your feet down, you're going to go too fast, and you're going to wreck. I said, do you understand? Put your feet down. And he said, yes, sir. I said, now, do you want me to go first and you to come after, or do you want to go first and me come after And without even saying anything, he just picked his feet up and took off down this hill. And I'm coming behind him on my bike saying, son, drag your feet, son, drag your feet. And he's picking up speed. Son, drag your feet, son, drag your feet. He's about the middle of the hill and he's going pretty fast. And the bottom of this hill is an intersection in our subdivision. And I just knew that he was going to go through the intersection and there could potentially be a car coming. And so I'm going as fast as I can, passing him, saying, son, put your feet down, son, put your feet down. My neighbor, through the intersection, hears me yelling, and he's walking out. And my son goes straight into this intersection. By the grace of God, there was no cars coming. And he loses control of his bike, going pretty fast, and he he crashes. Does he have a helmet on? No. No, he doesn't have a helmet because I'm an all-star dad and I champion my kids to rise above the challenges. But as he laid in the middle of this intersection on the asphalt with blood running out of his head, I didn't really know how to respond. So I just grabbed him up. My neighbor came out and grabbed the bikes and rolled them back to the house. And I went straight into kind of daddy mode. Now, there was a part of me that knew the conversation that would ensue once I walked into the house. But I kind of pretended it wasn't going to happen. And so I just kind of walked by my wife and said, we had a little accident. We're going to go clean it up. And she comes into the bathroom to check on Cohen with blood running down his face. And, and she goes into um, not only mommy mode, like, are you okay, son? But she goes into protective mode, right? What were you thinking letting our son ride down that hill without a helmet on? And I resisted it. I was cleaning him up, right? Blood was coming out pretty good. So I got to the bathtub and we were cleaning it up. She said, why did you let him go down the hill? And I just kind of ignored her and kept trying to figure out if this is going to take stitches. Do we need to go to the emergency room? What's this look like? And she was kind of like demanding an answer. Like, what's your problem? Like, what are you even thinking? Letting our kid go down that hill. That's not even remotely smart. And I kind of got to the point where I was like, all right, it's time to fight back, right? I've had enough trying to take care of our kid. And so I became assertive. I raised my voice. I slammed the door. I'm not proud. And I said to my wife, 
Let me take care of my son and stop nagging me, right? You know how that goes. I know you guys don't fight with family and spouses, but time to time we have those conversations. Not one of my proudest moments in front of my kids. And um, we got Cohen kind of taken care of, and I thought that it would, it would be over, but it wasn't over. And truthfully, it lasted several days. And um, I finally had to man up and admit that I was wrong. And that's all it took, really, saying I'm sorry and that I was wrong, which is hard for us men sometimes. But I realized after the fact that in the moment I chose to fight a fight and I felt good about it, but when I looked back on it later, I realized I'd, I'd really lost the war. It wasn't really a fight worth fighting. I should have just swallowed some pride. I should have just been a little more humble. I should have just been a little more wise. And I should have had a conversation with my wife without raising my voice. And we could have resolved it in the moment and taken care of our child better. He's fine. Uh, he's got this tick. No, he doesn't really have a tick. He's good. Everything's fine. Uh, all that to say, in life, we face conflict, right? We get into those moments where we feel like fighting. And sometimes we don't fight the good fight. We fight the wrong fight. So when you hear me say, as Christians, as the church, it's time for us to rise up and fight for the faith. Even in the realm of the church, in the realm of this world that we live in, there are some fights that aren't worth fighting that we can choose to be right about something without making a difference in people's lives. Fighting the good fight isn't about being right. It's about having faith. It's about having faith. And so what I want to do today is I want to read uh, another scripture here in Timothy that the Apostle Paul um, writes to young Timothy, and he addresses him in a particular way that I think is extremely important. And so I want us to talk about what it means to be a soldier in the faith. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier. He's telling him to fight the good fight of the faith, and now he's calling him a good soldier. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He chooses to focus on the right things. He wants to please his commanding officer. Let me read those two verses again. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. There's a couple of things that I want to share about these two verses. And then I'm going to give you an Old Testament example uh, that we're going to kind of look at. And then we'll make a circle back. Here's the first thing that, that I want to note about these verses. Number one, good soldiers don't aim to avoid conflict, but rather they endure it. Good soldiers, their aim in life isn't to avoid conflict, but rather to endure it. To endure it. I say that because... We talk about choosing the right fight. Sometimes we choose not to fight when we should fight. And we choose not to fight sometimes because it's easier at times to avoid conflict 
than it is to endure it. And sometimes as we go through life and we're faced with conflict, we're faced with potential suffering, it's easy for us just to say, I would rather not even go down that path because I know it's going to be difficult. And so I'm going to choose to avoid it altogether. And the Apostle Paul doesn't say to young Timothy, avoid conflict, avoid hardship, but rather he says, endure it. In other words, you're going to face hardship. You're going to face conflict. You're going to face a struggle. You're going to face difficult times. Don't hide from it. Don't run from it. Don't be cowardly when it comes to a potential conflict, especially a conflict of the faith, but rather endure it as a good soldier who's committed not to civilian affairs, right, but to pleasing the orders he's been given by his commanding officer. I've never served in the military, and um, honestly, I don't have uh, a lot of conversations with men and women in the service. But I know of the stories that I've told of men or women who have chosen not to fight when they should have been fighting, that it's not a very honorable thing, that they aren't held in high esteem as good soldiers when they choose not to fight in the fight that they committed to fight in. And I say that just to say, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we sometimes have a mentality that this thing called faith is meant to make our life better, which we sometimes translate into a lack of conflict. But sometimes it's just the opposite. Paul says, you're going to have to endure conflict, but do it as a, a good soldier, Good soldier. Keep that in mind as we go to an example in just a moment. Here's the second thing that I want to remind us of. Good soldiers avoid civilian affairs to pursue the mission. Good soldiers avoid civilian affairs to pursue the mission. They're focused on the task at hand. They know what they're committed to. They are so pursuant of the mission that's been given to them that they choose to ignore civilian affairs. We all know what the word civilian means, but let me just read to remind us. A person who is not on active duty with a military, naval, police, or firefighting organization, but I really like this second definition. Anyone regarded by members of a profession, interest group, society, etc., as not belonging, a non-professional, or an outsider. So as people of faith... We're sometimes getting involved in affairs with people outside of the faith, and we worry and we focus more on things of the world than we do the mission that we're called to as followers of Jesus. You've experienced this, right? You've looked back on some fights that you've fought. You've looked back on some things that, that you thought were worth fighting for, and you realized, I've kind of lost focus. I've kind of drifted from what I'm supposed to be doing. The Apostle Paul is reminding young Timothy, you've got to fight as a good soldier, avoiding civilian affairs so that you can please your commanding officer. Our commanding officer is men and women of the faith. Uh, is Christ Jesus. And his word gives us instructions. It should be our guide. It should be our heart's motivation to pursue the mission that God's called us to. We'll talk about that a little more at the end, but let me give us an example of a great soldier. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me kind of 
set up the story for you. It's a familiar story. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. David, King David, king of the nation of Israel. He is um, in a time, 2 Samuel 11 tells us, where kings should have gone to war. So he himself should have been off fighting, um, taking territory, confronting enemies. This was the time of year when kings went to battle, but he chose to send the armies out, and he stayed back. Okay, That was a mistake, but we're not talking about David. It just so happened that while David was staying back from war, that he saw a woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. He sent someone to ask who she was. He was informed that she was the wife of a man named Uriah, who was at war fighting the fight that he should have been fighting. Made bad decisions. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And David has kind of a confrontation where he has to decide how he's going to resolve the conflict. So we pick up in the story where David is sending word to Uriah, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab, who was the commanding officer of Uriah, the husband of the woman that is now pregnant by David. Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. Now, I imagine that Uriah didn't know David. I assume this because when he asked who it was and he was told that she was his wife, that if they had known each other, perhaps he would have made a different decision. But regardless, Uriah comes to King David. He leaves war to come back to King David. Verse 7, when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. A little small talk. How are things going out on the field? How are things at war? How's Joab? How are the armies? How, how are things going? Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. Now this is... This is interesting if you're a committed soldier to the army that you're ser serving in and you're focused on the mission that you're called to. You've been given orders by Joab, your commanding officer, and all of a sudden the king calls you back to his palace. And after some small talk, he basically says, go home and relax. Enjoy some food, spend some time with your wife, take a break from all of the danger that you're facing. Just go home and relax, is how another version says. Go home and wash your feet. Go home and relax. And then after he left the past the palace, King David even sent a gift for him. We don't know what the gift was, but he sent him a gift. Now, we know what David's intention was, right? He wanted Uriah to go home and spend some time with his wife so that when Uriah found out that his wife was pregnant, Uriah would think that it was his child. Okay? That's the logical explanation for why King David is doing this. He is trying to hide his sin. He's trying to cover his tracks. He's trying to resolve something in the wrong way. But he chose a good soldier. He didn't choose a bad soldier. And when Uriah was told by King David to go home and relax, go home and wash his feet, notice what he did. Verse 9, But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. That's interesting. Interesting. I imagine if I was out fighting in the war and the president called me home and said, go home and take some time off, that I would appreciate that. I would appreciate spending time with my family going home, but Uriah refused to go home. 
He slept at the entrance to the palace. He slept with the servants because he was a good soldier. He wasn't willing to step away from the fight that he had committed to. So verse 10, when David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark, the ark of the covenant, which represented the presence of God, and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. All of my men are out at battle. They're sleeping in tents. They're in difficult situations. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. I'm too committed for that. I'm committed to this battle. I'm committed to my service to our nation. I'm not going to go home and enjoy a relaxing weekend when my fellow soldiers are out fighting this war. Frustrates David. He said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. He's he's getting persistent in trying to fulfill his plan. He gets Uriah drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master servants, and he still did not go home. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. He died, fighting a battle that he was committed to, but not knowing going on behind the scenes was a plot to take his life. He gave his life to a worthy cause, and it was taken from him because of a plot that he was unaware of. It's interesting to me that King David, who I would imagine would have been the most influential man in this time period, in this nation, could not convince a man to step away from the mission that he felt called to. There was a cause that was worth fighting for in the mind of Uriah. There was more important than relaxing weekend. It was more important than seeing his wife. It was more important than taking a break from the fight. What causes do you fight for? What injustices get your blood pumping? What motivates you to step toward conflict instead of away from it? If you can find out the answer to those questions, you can find a reality of the health of your faith. Because for many of us, the things that motivate us to fight are not things of the faith. When in actuality, there are things that should motivate us to fight in the faith that we avoid because there could be conflict. Uriah was an 
incredible soldier. He was a great soldier for one reason. He was committed to the cause. He was committed to the mission. He was all in. He wasn't just some soldier out in the field. This was a soldier that resisted the opportunity to leave the fight at the request of the king of a nation. It's probably arguably better for him in the end that he wasn't led into deception, some would say. But it's definitely unfair that he died for being committed to this cause. But what I want us to take from the life of Uriah is the importance of our commitment to the fight. Do you know the purpose that we've been called to as Christians, as followers of Christ? Do you understand the reality of the faith isn't just to make your life comfortable? It's not just to make my life comfortable. We don't fight the good fight of the faith so that we can experience the finer blessings of life. Do you know Jesus gave the church a mission? It's called the Great Commission, that we have an obligation to go into all the world and preach the good news of Jesus. We're to teach people the ways of the faith, that we're to spread the gospel, that we've been called to share our faith How committed of a soldier am I when it comes to the mission that I've been called to? How committed of a soldier are you in the army of God, in the realm of the faith, when it comes to fulfilling the purposes that God's given you? One of the greatest opportunities that we have is committing to the local church, and I'm so proud that we're a church full of people who are faithful Uh, who are selfless, who give of themselves, who give of their resources, who endure a difficult season as a church when we don't even have our own facility so that we can pursue a mission that God's called us to as a church. But if we're comparing our lives to that of Uriah, the question for us all would be, are we good soldiers? And are we willing to fight instead of taking a break? Are we willing to pursue the mission that we've been called to rather than enjoying the pleasures for ourselves? Sadly, for most of us, there are many times where the answer to that question would be no. And I wanted to remind us this morning quite simply that we aren't just men and women walking through life without purpose. But we're soldiers in the army of the living God who's given us a life mission that's worth fighting for. That there will be difficulties, there will be conflict, there will be hard times that we'll face. But when it comes to our faith and being strong in our faith and being committed in our faith, it's important for us to understand that our commitment to the cause of the faith has to outweigh our commitments to all the other causes in the world. Let me just make up an example. Let's say that there's a soldier over in the Middle East fighting. He's been given a mission. But he notices while he's on his mission that there's an injustice in that land. 
But there are little boys, there are little girls that are being mistreated. And it pulls at his heart. And let's just say that he stepped outside of his commands to go and defend little boys and little girls. Is that a good cause? Many would say it's a good cause. But if he got so distracted and got so involved in a conflict that he wasn't called to, and he forgot the mission that he was called to fight for, he doesn't just help the little boys and the little girls, but he also harms his fellow soldiers, perhaps the country that he's fighting for, because he isn't providing the commitment that's called to of a soldier. And I know there's many things in life that are worth fighting for. I serve on a board of directors for an organization that fights against child abuse. It's something that really stirs my heart, that I'm passionate about. But that can never outweigh my call to the faith. Slavery is an enormous problem in our world today. And many people feel called to that injustice. And that is a fight worth fighting as long as it doesn't outweigh the call to the faith. See, as a church, it's possible for us at times to take our energy, our efforts, our resources, and fight for injustices in the world that don't advance the mission of the church. And it's not that we choose to look away from injustices in the world. We're not called to do that. It's not that we choose to ignore a helping hand. It's not that we choose to abandon people who may need us. It's just that we have to do it in the right way, in the right time. And we have to stay focused on the mission that God's called us to. The church isn't called to be an organization simply for philanthropy. We're not called simply to help people out of injustices but we're called to advance the cause of Christ because we know that if it weren't for Christ, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins, but he made us alive in him. And that's the mission that we have to advance. That's the mission that we have to give our lives to. And so I want to ask us as a church this morning if I can pray for us as we end our time together. A prayer for us individuals, but a prayer for us as a church that we would be a church that's committed to the mission that God's called us to. That we wouldn't lose sight of the fact that over four and a half years ago, we committed as a church to make Christ known in the lives of people far from God. That we live in a community that's full of people that know about God but don't know God. Statistically, around 76% of the people in our community do not even attend an evangelical church. We are surrounded by masses of people who may be far from God, who potentially don't know the truth of the gospel. And I so want to be the church that carries the message of hope to a hurting world. I so want to be the pastor of a church that not only cares for our community, but in addition to caring for our community, shares what's most important 
with our community. We've always been passionate about that, and I want to pray that God would give us favor to fight well the fight of the faith, that we would be good soldiers, that we would pursue the mission that God's called us to with such naivety as Uriah that we would look past any temptation that would be self-serving, that we might sacrifice for the mission that's ahead of us. And you know the good news? is that King Jesus would never try to harm us. We would never serve a king that would try to murder us. We would never serve a king that would betray us. We can have confidence that our commitment to the cause of Christ is a worthy commitment. So as we as a church commit to pursuing our mission, I want to ask for God's hand of blessing and favor to be upon us that we might see fruit for our labor, that we might experience an overflow of God's hope in our community, that he might grant us influence, he might grant us the ability to share in avenues that the churches in this community have never been able to share in. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I pray that as a church, we would be a church that's committed to the cause of Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would be great soldiers. I pray that we wouldn't live our lives to avoid conflicts, Father, but we would endure conflicts, not in a manner that's not worthy, but, Father, as good soldiers who are committed to the cause, who are focused on a mission that aren't distracted by civilian affairs that aren't moved by things that may seem like a worthy fight but won't help us win the war in faith. And I ask, Father, that as we, as a church, remain faithful and committed to the mission that you've called us to, through difficult times, through easy times, on mountaintops and valleys, when we get tired and when we're strong, I pray, Lord, that you would grant us a favor. I pray that you would bless our church. I pray that you would allow your spirit to give us a boldness and a courage to fight well. That we would pursue the right missions. That we would aim ourselves to please our commanding officer that we wouldn't be tempted to allow the civilian affairs of this world to keep us from the mission that you've called us to. And I pray most of all, Father, that people far from God would come to know you. I pray that the people in this community that are without hope, who may be pursuing hope and peace and joy, and things of this world, whose eyes have been blinded to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who, who don't know the reality of a life in Christ, that you would allow us, Father, to carry the, the message of hope well, that they, Father, may experience new life in you. And I ask, Father, that you would transform our community. I pray that you would breathe a breath of blessing over our church 
I pray that you would allow us, Father, to take ground, that we would move toward the mission that you've called us to. I pray that you would open doors that allow us to advance the gospel. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us a steadfast, faithful commitment to the cause of Christ. And as that plays out in the local church, Father, I pray that you would honor it. As men and women give their time and and serve you week in and week out. As people give of their resources to help build a church. As people give of their influence to leverage relationships for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As people are involved in community and encouraging one another and building one another up and strengthening one another in the faith. God, would your hand of blessing be extended to Winder, Georgia, to Barrow County, to Synergy Church. And may we be a lighthouse in a dark world. May we be a refuge in times of trouble. May we be, Father, the answer to the questions of people who don't know you by sharing the hope that's found in the love of Jesus Christ, that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus, that we might believe in him and have eternal life. Freely we have received. Now, Father, I pray that freely we would give We've been blessed to bless others. We're better together. I pray, Lord, that you would unite us around the purpose that you've called us to and allow us to experience the fruit of our labor, Lord God. May we see lives transformed. May we see men and women and students radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we see marriages that are crumbling be brought back to life and restored. May we see the the sick in our community healed physically, spiritually, and emotionally. May we find favor in your eyes and be given influence, a supernatural influence. Would you turn the hearts of men and women toward the Father? And may you grant us the ability to reach further than we've ever reached. I pray, Lord God, that you would provide for us as a church, that you would give us opportunities that we don't deserve, that we haven't earned. May we reap blessings that have been sown by generations before us. And may we sow for generations to come. Use us, O Lord, for your glory, for your kingdom, that we may be committed to the cause of Christ more than our self-advancing motivations. And may we be steadfast in an and a resounding love that echoes throughout this community. 
I ask your spirit to empower us. I pray, Father, for a, a fresh visitation of your spirit upon us that we might experience the realities of your plans for us. I pray that we would endure well in seasons where we get tired, where we feel like giving up, where we may feel like we're not making a difference. Would you allow us, Father, to endure those seasons as good soldiers, faithfully committed to your cause? May we hear well, we ask for wisdom as we allow you to build your church. We pray you give us ears to hear your voice clearly. We pray that we would have the courage to obey and follow the mission that you set out for us. And we ask you, Jesus, to do the impossible in our very midst. Allow us to see things we've never seen and, and experience realities that we've never even dreamed of. we thank you, Father. We believe together that you can do through us more than we could ever do on our own. And Father, I pray for every individual here this morning that may be facing a personal conflict, that may be struggling in their own faith, may be facing a a physical conflict, health-wise. They may be facing a financial conflict. They need your provision. They may be facing an emotional conflict and they need to be encouraged. They may be struggling with sins and temptations and hardships in this world that you would grant them a focus Give victories, Father. Set captives free. Deliver people from their prisons. But most of all, help us endure as good soldiers, committed in our faith, no matter what we're experiencing, knowing that the seasons that we're in won't last forever, but your word endures to the end. I pray you bless your people, Lord God. Pray your richest blessings flood their lives, even in this moment. Allow the hurting to be healed, Father. Allow the lonely to find their hope not in relationships but in you allow the broken to be mended allow the lost to be found allow the dead to become alive thank you Father in Jesus name
together we said. Amen.